We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. So the whole solar eclipse thing's coming up on April 8th, which is my wife's birthday. And um, that's how I'll remember it. The eclipse, of course. So uh, anyway, um, and, and I'm kind of confused as to whether the, it's a good idea for the kids not to be in school at that day, because this is supposed to happen between two and four in the afternoon. So I guess the, the, the fear is that they come home or they're, they're going to look up and blah, 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 and, you know, you, you just can't do that during a solar eclipse. Um, the uh, the headline, solar eclipse, not a reason to close school schools early, uh, Ontario's education minister says. But as you read down farther, um, the Toronto District School Board has voted to move their professional development day from the 19th of April to the 8th, so students will not be at school the day of the eclipse. However, it's not like the kids lose a day at school. They're just swapping the week before or two weeks before's uh, dates around, and the uh, the education minister, Stephen Lecce, is in favor of that. So I'm not sure where the concern is, or 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 is there a concern, or is it a good idea to have the kids in a certain place, or perhaps a learning moment? I don't know. Let's bring in Dr. Elena High, Director, Alan Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. And here now, Elena, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, absolutely. I'm just uh, admiring the uh, the eclipse map and getting very, very jealous of everyone in Hamilton, because, of course, you will have a totality, and we will not. So we all know, and let's start this right off at the top, do not look directly at the sun, do not look yes. directly at the sun. Um, <laughs> and we're talking about how whether kids should be in school or not in school. Uh, obviously, you're not an administrator at the school level or anything like that. But what are your thoughts? Is this how unsafe is this? Should this alter our behavior in any way? Well, it's I think if you are in the totality area, it is going to be a really spectacular event. Um, and you always have the question of, okay, when you're, when you're distracting people with a spectacular event, that does make certain things a little bit more hazardous than they would normally be. So if you were yeah. operating equipment or driving, um, it would be very distracting for you. And I think the idea is that they're they're thinking that people will get distracted, perhaps, walking home. Um, and I know that a lot of the schools have to close at a certain time. So one danger, I suppose, you could have is if you were running the school and you're telling everyone about the eclipse, um, obviously there's some wonderful educational moments that you can do. But for example, if you had to close and send all the students home before um, the peak eclipse happened, would they then be more likely to get in accidents? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, that said, Hamilton does have the maximum uh, for the um, for the totality. So in Hamilton, yeah. you will actually get this very striking event at uh, 3.18 all the way to 3.19, a little over two minutes. Um, it is only two minutes that you're going to get totality, and the rest of the time it's just going to look like a regular day. It's not going to look mm. any different unless you are stopped and using uh, um, eclipse uh, viewing technology or sun viewing aids like pinhole cameras and stuff like that, uh, which is obviously what we want people to do. Try to view the sun in a safe way using projection or safe solar glasses um, and enjoy this event because it is going to be pretty spectacular, as I say, especially for you guys. You know, uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, glorious that Hamilton's going to be in the sweet spot for this. It's almost like we need a moment of silence, Elena. You know, like just to stop the world for a couple of minutes, just while we, you know, get over there and then move on. <laughs> you know? But it, it seems to be, it, that's yeah. right. It seems to be that transition where that's where people are concerned. Yeah, and I could understand that they're worried about people getting distracted. But the thing to realize is that if you are not in the middle of totality, um, everything looks exactly normal. So um, when our sun has a partial eclipse, part of the sun gets blocked by the moon. But the sun is so incredibly bright, we really don't notice it. Uh, right. It doesn't. It doesn't have any effect on our daylight or our um, our experience here on Earth unless we are using, as I say, projection techniques to project the sun's surface onto something. 
Um, so when you see pictures of partial eclipses, it's never a direct picture of the sun. It's always with some sort of filter or, right. or protection in place. And so I don't think you're going to get a lot of people, um, I suppose, distracted when they're not in totality. <laughs> um, the real danger is just because the partial does have a, a fair two-hour window, um, you don't want people yeah. looking up when it's not safe. So uh, just how dark will it get in totality, and how wide is that corridor? So the, the corridor for totality, it runs, um, it runs a fair distance. So it's, uh, it's roughly, so you folks are in Hamilton. So it runs south across the border into New York, past, uh, so past Niagara Falls. Uh, it doesn't quite get as far as um, Ithaca, New York. So you're you're looking at a, a fair swath, but um, it does not go much past uh, Hamilton. So you you're in a, as I say, a very uh, auspicious location. Uh, Burlington will get a, get a little bit of totality, but once you get up to um, sort of Oakville area in the north, uh, that's it. You're 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 partial eclipse. <laughs> so will will Hamilton see for a split uh, amount of time there, a small amount of time, darkness? Yes. So Hamilton, this, this is a special one. So if you are in one of the areas that does experience totality, you will get some amount of total nighttime darkness. And <laughs> hopefully um, if, you're, if you're a little bit out of the city or you don't have too much light pollution, it'll be even more spectacular. Um, and Hamilton will get about one minute and 46 seconds. Um, and how long you get depends on exactly where you are. Um, so Niagara Falls, they get more like three minutes. Yeah, they're having they're they're planning a lot for Niagara Falls. They're using this as a tourist event, which is great. All right, Elena, I'm sure we will chat with you again before this big event. Dr. Elena Hyde with us, Director Alan Carswell, Observatory Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. Fascinating, Elena. Thanks for the time. Be well. Be well and safe solar viewing, everyone. We heard yesterday the online harms bill has a focus on human rights and stiffening responses to hate crimes in online platforms uh, and including pretty much five main areas uh, of targeting, including number one, target specific types of harmful content Two, add fresh responsibilities for online platforms. Three, create a new regulator and new uh, ombudsperson Four, strengthen reporting around child pornography. Five, change the Canadian Human Rights Act and add stiffer sentences for hate crimes to talk more about all of this bernie farber with us chair of the canadian anti-hate network and here now bernie thank you for the time hope you're well i'm well thank you scott thank you for having me so barney uh, bernie your thoughts on this at first blush um uh, will it make a difference is it a start what are your thoughts well it's it's a start over i could put it that way um hmm. The the original uh, section around hate online uh, was encompassed to some degree under the Canadian Human Rights Act uh, as far back as uh, you know the early 2000s and continued so until the uh, Conservative government of Stephen Harper repealed Section 13, which dealt specifically with online hatred. Um, from 2013 until I guess recently. We've, we've seen some of the consequences of what can happen if we don't have, um, you know, rules and regulations and laws uh, to ensure that young people, especially, uh, but not always young people, uh, don't get radicalized uh, and literally turned on uh, by hatred. And we saw it uh, in, you know, in 2017 uh, when a an individual, and I don't want to say their names because they don't deserve to be aired, but a man walked into the uh, mosque in Quebec City and murdered six Canadian Muslims at prayer. We saw it uh, a short time later when an, an individual known as an incel, um, this is a person who hates women and uh, is, a, is an involuntary celibate, uh, took his car and rammed dozens of people along Young Street uh, near Finch in Toronto, killing uh, about 14 people. Uh, we, we saw it, of course, as recently in London, Ontario. And of course, it, it's made big news because uh, the individual involved was not only found guilty of the murders of the Oswald family, four generations of the Oswald family, but also uh, proclaimed it as a terrorist, the court proclaimed it as a terrorist yeah. act. What is a thread that goes through all of these crimes? 
All of the all of them purport the perpetrators purport to have been uh, radicalized, to have been moved, to have been uh, enveloped by hatred online. That's where they got these ideas was online. And so now the government, after way too many years, this is, this is something that should have had its day years ago, um, came has come up with law uh, specifically targeting online hatred. And um, and also with a keen eye towards young people, uh, towards children who are very often both the victim and sometimes, as 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 we have seen in too many cases, All also right. the perpetrator. Bernie, um, uh, and, Bernie, Bernie, yep. we certainly we certainly know the need. We certainly know the tragedy. We certainly know the objectives here. My point is: Does this? Will this make a difference? What does this add? How is it different now? So, are no, you are it, you con- you are know, you concerned? Are you concerned? Hang on, hang on. Are you concerned that this is going to this is going to make a difference? I'm con- I'm not concerned. I, oh, sorry, I do believe you, this will make a difference. Yeah, that was my I question. I do believe sorry. that once you create barriers and once you create laws, um, you know, most people are apt to follow the laws. And even those that don't want to follow the laws will realize that there are serious consequences for not following the laws. Uh, right now, you know, the barn door was open and anybody could do whatever they wanted to do. And 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 the individuals who have engaged in, in, in this kind of hatred that has led to what we have seen, uh, you know, had no fear of any kind of consequences whatsoever. Now there are consequences. Um, and I mean, some of the consequences are heavily significant. I mean, you can be charged and convicted uh, and get a sentence of up to life imprisonment, you know, for advocating genocide and those kinds of things, or five years in prison for, uh, you know, for advocating hatred and spreading hatred, uh, and and certainly lengthier sentences added on to you know other kinds of forms of assault that are uh, that are inspired by hatred. This this is important, but it, it goes further than that, Scott. It it, it also tells uh, social media companies that they no longer have free reign. Uh, and by the way, I I do believe that most social media companies want to do the right thing. Sometimes, like all of us, we just have to be cajoled into doing it. Um, but but here, you know, we had there is an opportunity for whether it's Google or Facebook or Twitter, now known as X, to work cooperatively uh, with government and government services, you know, with the ombudsperson, with the regulator, in order to ensure that these hate messages and hate crimes are not present on their server anymore. And there will be consequences if they don't. Uh, we're certainly seeing what's going on now with uh, uh, government and, and social media and, and battles that are going on there. Um, uh, again, I, I don't mean to be overly skeptical about this, Bernie, but I'm not sure how this is going to stop happening uh, or stop the things from happening that are happening. Who determines what is hate? Is it up to the social media companies to determine that? Is it up to them to police it? Um, because well, again, as, because again, so, social media, that, that, social social media companies and government don't necessarily seem to see the eye to eye on this. Well, that's why we have regulation, and as part of these new regulations, there will be a a specific and significant definition of hate that has uh, that has been taken from courts of law, from actually Supreme Court cases, the uh, the Keekstra case back in the nineteen eighties. And the Whatcott case, uh, many years later, uh, there has now there is now a definition of hatred that's going to be placed into the legislation, so that people will understand, you know, what hatred is and how it's how it's developed. Will it stop everything? Will everything be like you know, peachy keen dandy again? Of course not. I mean, bank robbers still rob banks, uh, but uh, you know, we they, they understand that there's going to be serious consequences again. And not everybody's going to jump into a car with a gun and rob a bank. That's because we have laws like that. When you have laws that give you guidelines as to what is permissible in terms of the extreme of hatred, um, I, I think that it, it, it does send a message to young people and to others um, that, th- that this is now a no-go zone. It kind of builds, if you will, Scott, a fence of protection uh, for, for vulnerable communities out there. Bernie Farber with us, chair of the uh, Canadian Anti-Hate Network, the online harms bill out as of yesterday. Bernie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
Thanks, God. You take care. We say artificial intelligence and everybody, oh, tightens up. And, you know, I mean, there's so many different facets to artificial intelligence. Um, and, and I'm not going to start listing them all up here because we'd be talking about it forever. But this is another angle of this discussion that you may not have thought about. And what this reminded me of was a few years ago when we decided to take cursive writing, the, the art of writing out of the classroom. And I got two kids who fell in this cohort. And now, of course, they brought it back and such. But I'm thinking just even, you know, the brain work required and the structure that's required for actually writing. Well, what about even even if you're at a keyboard writing anything? Because when AI or once it is uh, involved in all of this, it's it's a lot different. It's there isn't that creative thought process. Uh, what does that mean moving forward for the next generation? Let's bring in Dr. Joel Henhartsey, Senior Lecturer, Faculty of Education, Simon Fraser University, and here now. Joel, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks very much. Jeff. This is another angle, man. I didn't even think of this one. Uh, obviously, when you're writing, not only are you, you know, there's talk of plagiarism, there's talk of uh, information that isn't accurate, but you're also losing the ability to structure, to write things. What What is one of the downfalls of this as you see it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we were trying to get at, so we, uh, my colleague Taylor Morfitt and I wrote this piece for the conversation that a lot of people have been reading today. One of the things we're really trying to get at here is, is helping people to understand that writing is not simply a mechanical process, but it's a it's a technology of thinking, right? It's a human invention. It's, it's not natural to us the way that speech is, but it's a human invention. It's a technology that we've created uh, to help us organize our thoughts. And I think that what students lose when they decide they're going to outsource their thinking to say chat GPT or other generative AI is they lose the opportunity to uh, to dig into and actually learn things, right? The notion is that writing then becomes simply a product rather than a process of thinking, which is really what it's meant to be. Uh, so what, what if those that say this is perhaps a skill that it was outdated? I remember that when they removed cursive. Well, we don't need this anymore because we live in a keyboard, a keyboard world. What about those that would say this skill isn't needed moving forward? I don't, I'm not sure how far those people would like to go. I mean, is, is, uh, is speaking not needed? Is, should we yeah. all just download things directly from Wikipedia into our brains? The fact is that this, this is a natural, um, you know, it's been a part of our culture for many years. Um, and it's something that we've decided as a society matters for uh, people who are figuring out how to how the world works and how to understand their academic disciplines. So if I think about a first year student who has assigned to write a paper in, let's say, a psychology course, right? The purpose of the paper really shouldn't be get an A, produce grammatically correct sentences that mm -hmm. regurgitate the textbook. But yeah. the idea is we should be asking the students to engage in a struggle with new information, a process of learning, of organizing their thoughts. And so I think that's that's what I argue, at least when I talk to my own students in the first year writing courses that I teach, I say, look, you're, there, there's no real point in outsourcing this work because the process is the work, right? Yeah. And that's what I think um, everybody needs to remember. How do they get that message? How do you teach that? That, you know, I'm not looking for a regurgitated something else to give you an A+. I need to see your brain working. How do you translate that? How do you encourage them to do that? That's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I that I've done, and I think a lot of people are starting to do this, is I've I've lowered the stakes in terms of grading. So I have very few assignments when I teach writing that are worth sort of a one shot make or break sort of you know pass or fail. Um, I have a lot of small assignments, and it's it's really not worth it to the students to do the outsourcing because everything that we do in in my course, and I think a lot of people. A lot of people's courses now, it's iterative, right? So the thing you did in class today becomes the basis of the assignment you write tomorrow, which comes the basis of the research paper you write a, a month from now. So all of these little things, you know, reading through articles, getting feedback from peers and your professors, they all build up to what would be called a final product. But again, what I care about, what I'm grading is the process of getting there. So I think switching the way that students are assessed is one way to do this so that they don't just feel all my professor wants is this polished professional piece of work because nobody does that, right? Nobody, nobody produces a, a, a perfect, uh, you know, sort of publishable mm. quality paper. Not even professional writers do that when they're, when they're first learning a subject. Is this a benefit of AI? We can identify this exactly what you're talking about and bring out the opposite. 
Uh, the opposite of what? I don't know if I follow. Of, of AI. In other words, your own creative thought. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, one of the things I tell my students is, it, you know, if you want to use ChatGPT to create an assignment, that's fine. But I'm going to be able to tell in about five seconds that you didn't do it, right? Because there's no there's no evidence of uh, of having engaged with the material. It's it's really, um, although AI produces sort of grammatically correct sentences, um, it does so in an extremely fat, dull, and dry way. By, by definition, it is the lowest common denominator. It is a system that predicts the most likely sequence of words or really symbols in a sentence. So it's it's not going to be creative almost by definition. Is this a bigger problem than we think it is? In other words, um, plagiarism, cheating is cheating is cheating. Uh, profs like yourself will figure it out. I mean, it is a pretty big problem. I'll say that in, in my field, which is is the teaching of academic writing, it this has been the, the introduction or the widespread availability of generative AI and large language models has been treated as a bit of a crisis. On the one hand, it is a new technology, the likes of which we have not seen. For a student to be able to push a button and generate an essay that looks plausibly human, we haven't seen that before, and it is hard to deal with. It's hard to figure out what to do about it. On the other hand, we've had this type of crisis or so-called crisis before, and we've eventually figured out how to deal with it. So if you think about when Wikipedia was introduced in the early mm. to mid 2000s, mm. many teachers said, this is terrible. It's going to, um, students aren't going to do their own work anymore. They're just going to, and, and how can we trust the credibility of the information? And those were valid concerns. Uh, you might recall Stephen Colbert uh, satirizing Wikipedia with the concept of truthiness. Yeah. But eventually as a society, we kind of figured it out. Wikipedia is more or less a pretty decently reliable source in part because it's created by a human community, right? So one of the challenges about generative AI is there are few human checks and balances on it on the front end. On the back end, certainly there are people, in fact, people being paid very poorly uh, in in uh, Kenya, for example, to vet some of the, the, uh, the output of the machine. But I think one of the challenges is that students or, or people using this, this, this technology, they're not always aware that they need to be fact-checking it. I have students who think that ChatGPT is a search engine like Google, mm. and it most certainly isn't. So I think this, like any technology, there are challenges that we're just starting to deal with. I do think we'll figure it out eventually, but it certainly has been a unique challenge in, in our profession. Dr. Joel Henghardsey with us, Senior Lecturer, Faculty of Education, Simon Fraser University, Balancing the Art of Writing and Artificial Intelligence. Fascinating, Joel. Thank you for the time. Be well. Thanks a lot. Take care. We had uh, lucky enough to have uh, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP, on on Friday, and he was announcing that day the big pharmacare deal, described it as, as historic and a big step forward for him and his party uh, and a big success. What does it mean? Because, again, the liberals really haven't said too much about it. We really don't know how it affects those people who perhaps already have insurance or pharmacare of some sort. Let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association. He is here now. Thank you for the time, Justin. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me on. So what is your thought, first blush at this, Justin? Great idea. Um, uh, and I guess specifically, do the provinces already have something like this in place? It just needs the funding to execute. Well, it certainly needs the funding. And I think it's, it's perfect political theater over the last uh, week or so. You know, yeah. The announcement made when... Justin Trudeau is overseas, and you see the win that Yagmeet Singh is taking on this and really being the, the front person. But the challenge about this is that there is no funding commitment, even in the next fiscal year, and mm. conversations with the provinces, which are critical to implementing any pharmacare arrangement, haven't even begun yet. Our understanding is that there'll be some sort of committee established uh, in government over the next uh, few months to determine how this is going to be all working. But at the end of the day, what we know today, at least, is that um, the plan is to have this single-payer type system, which means even people that have coverage today through their employers or individually will be moved from private insurance onto taxpayer-funded public plans, and those that don't have coverage would also join the plan. And to do that, it's going to cost an enormous amount of money on an annual basis and really doesn't target the money in a what we would consider an effective way. Because it takes what people already have and actually covers less medications in most cases 
what's on the, the drug formularies for the public government programs. So we don't think it goes far enough because there's many medications that Canadians can't afford today, and they're only focusing it on two. And rather than try to take people and move them over, let's focus on those that can't afford their mm. medications. That's what the major concern is, is the majority who already have this. Uh, if you're switching it over, you're just presenting that bill with the government uh, to the government. I'm not sure this is the most effective way. And I, I remember talking to the Ontario Dental Association about dental care and such. And again, you know, they're, they're supportive of anything that's going to get uh, help for their patients. And I'm sure you feel the same way. But is this the most efficient way to do it? In other words, the, the provinces I've talked to said, we're more than capable. We know who needs the help. The problem is we don't have the funding. So rather than targeting that funding to where each individual province uh, needs it, it seems we're coming up with more bureaucracy and another plan, another big plan, expensive plan. It could be very expensive. The Parliamentary Budget Office has estimated that if we had a full single-payer or first-dollar program across the country for all medicines and all Canadians, they would cost at least $30 annually. And that's an astronomical number. And it's probably... That's probably an underestimate of the total cost when you add in all the administration, cost of uh, drugs, et cetera. So, you know, we're not talking about a small price tag and there's no budget allocated right now. And we've got to figure out what that formula is going to be for the provinces to take on this. Because right now we have Pharmacare, but it is a mixed model of private and public. And all of the provinces have some form of um, Pharmacare program. In Ontario, we have trillium for those that uh, reach a certain expense of their medications relative to their income, which most people don't are, are not using or don't realize exists. We also have the Ontario Drug Benefit Program, which covers those uh, on social assistance, disabilities, and seniors. So the gaps are relatively small in the big picture. And there's about 5 to 10% of the population that are in that category across the country of either underinsured, meaning they have insurance, but they can't necessarily afford the co-pays or deductibles, and those that have zero insurance coverage. Um, and we know that, you know, cost of living and some choices are, hard choices are being made by Canadians and maybe not getting their medications. And we want to solve that. We do want to make sure that every Canadian has access to medications. And we think by having a mixed model, uh, that's the way to go. Uh, what questions should Canadians be asking, Justin? Because, again, the politics involved here is pretty ripe. And be, you know, Oh, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. What questions should Canadians be asking? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, you know, what's the plan uh, in terms of implementation? How will this be implemented and by when? Because a lot of this will happen post the confidence and supply agreement that the Liberals and NDP have in June of 2025. And then, you know, why why only these medications? What's the, the future look like? And will I get less medications than I have today and I enjoy if I'm on the employer plan? Because that's what we're seeing in many of these cases where if you move to a provincial plan, you actually get covered less. And, and some we saw that in OHIP, uh, OHIP Plus back in 2017, 2018, where they did it for the under 25 uh, age population, and they actually had to walk it back because it was a nightmare, and it was a first dollar, first pair scenario, and now it's a pair of last resort as government, which to us makes the most sense. Fill the gaps, target the, the money that's going to be spent and where it's most needed, and work with the provinces to uh, customize a bilateral deal and funding the gaps in each of the provinces. That makes the most sense, and we're already seeing provinces like Quebec and Alberta opt out And it hasn't even been really announced what the details are. So we're a long way from seeing this uh, come to fruition in my mind. Justin Bates with us, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association, commenting on the new Pharmacare uh, agreement between the NDP and the Liberals that was announced at least partially on Friday. Justin, thank you for the time and insight. Be well. Thank you. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News Today's Talk. 900 CHML. The leader of the NDP on Friday afternoon, right here on this show, uh, announced the very his very historic uh, view of Pharmacare and uh, what they were going to do with the Liberals moving forward. The Prime Minister was actually in Ukraine and then Poland. Uh, I guess this was the second anniversary 
anniversary of the Russian invasion of uh, of Ukraine and more pressure from NATO to increase spending and such. Uh, in an interview on the West Block, Canada's former chief of defense staff added to all this. Uh, retired General Rick Hillier, uh, Hillier said Canada's biggest national security risk is our irrelevance. The fact that nobody even bothers to communicate with us says something. Christian Leprec with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, fellow at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute, author of the new book, Security, Cooperation, Governance, the Canada-United States Open Border Paradox from University of Michigan Press. Christian Leprec with us now. Christian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. You bet, Scott. Good afternoon. Nice to be on with you. So uh, on Friday, as I mentioned, uh, the NDP leader was announcing Pharmacare. Uh, I found it odd that uh, that the prime minister was in Ukraine and then in Poland uh, at the time that this large announcement was being made. Uh, that being said, it didn't take long for NATO to thank everybody in Canada for everything they've done, but of course, increase the spending. Did Was the prime minister expecting to get more pressure from NATO on what he's doing? Yeah, well, as you rightly point out, the optics are interesting, right? I think the prime minister wants to have no part in this deal. And so, you know, he was as far away as he possibly could. You know, you mentioned it's two years since the Russian invasion. Of course, in other ways, it's 10 years since 2014 uh, when mm. uh, when Russia first uh, uh, violated uh, Ukraine's sovereignty. Canada was there from the beginning with Op Unifier, with the United Kingdom and the U.S. training forces. So there's been a certain uh, sustainability in Canada's effort. But it's a little bit, uh, shall we say, ironic for a prime minister who just cut a billion dollars from defense, who is notorious for making announcements on the last pos- at the last possible minutes on defense procurement. Look at, for instance, the P8 surveillance claims or how long this government dithered on F-35s. You know, this is a cabinet that uh, has been in the prime minister who's been utterly resistant to uh, the uh, constitution. Uh, sustainment of the Canadian armed forces, and yet he has the audacity to fly to Ukraine and tell Ukraine and the West uh, what a loyal ally Canada is, and now Canada stands behind Ukraine. And I think some Canadians have a hard time uh, squaring the circle here. Uh, you know, the Prime Minister also made some announcements in terms of supports and the security agreement, but of course, much of this is rather vague. Uh, significant amounts of the money that the Prime Minister announced were monies that are already committed. So that is to say, these are not new monies. And, uh, you know, when he makes a very modest commitment to Ukraine, and while he cuts the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, he's clearly happy to invest uh, quite heavily and considerably in entitlement programs that uh, locks in future governments for, uh, for generations. And all that, of course, on borrowed money. And so, you know, we can see that the minority government's priority is clearly not defense, is clearly not our allies, um, is trying to get the votes where it can. And the reason why this is tragic is, uh, as Rick Hiller points out, the greatest risk to Canadian foreign policy has always been irrelevance. We're not a country that is systematically relevant to the world or to the international order, contrary to what most Canadians think. We make ourselves relevant by the investments that we bring and by the commitments that we make, the innovation that we can bring, for instance, to the Suez crisis, keeping the superpowers from going to war with one another. And when you don't have commitments to make, when you're not making investments, and when you're not bringing innovation to the conversation, you're going to be simply, you might have a seat at the table, but your voice isn't going to be heard, as we already know from NATO, where Canada's voice is vastly diminished. That means Canada can't assert its interests. And so Canadians ultimately have a choice. Uh, the government needs to choose whether it will simply have Canada standing in the world diminished, uh, whether it will simply draft behind our allies, or whether Canada wants to continue to be um, uh, a game maker and a game changer in a very dangerous 21st century uh, security environment. Um, and I would say that you know the second half of the 20th century showed that Canada even with the medium power that it is, can do such things, but it requires a political commitment and a political will. And the prime minister is signaling that that is certainly not here, at least not with the current government. And we might say it hasn't been here for the last 25 years. Uh, on that note, we had Pierre Polyev on last week, and I asked him specifically if he would do more to increase commitments. He basically echoed his, my words and said, we'll do more to increase. W- what do you think another government's going to do here? Do you think they're going to solve the issue or at least work towards it? 
Well, I think this is not a short-term problem, uh, given that we've had 25 years of neglect and divestment for the, from the Canadian Armed Forces and the shape the Canadian Armed Forces are in. Look at the institutional culture, look at morale, look at the equipment, um, uh, look at the state of uh, the, the, the outdated, um, the many outdated issues around this organization. It will probably require a 15-year plan to reconstitute this force. This is what I think um, the chief, the outgoing chief Defense Staff General Air had in mind when he said the priority has to be on reconstitution. Uh, and rather than reconstituting the force, the Prime Minister keeps doing more of the same, which is to uh, keep on working that force, the little force that he has left, as hard as he possibly can without any consideration for uh, the next five years or the next 10 years. And how do we set up uh, the force for success, uh, which is ultimately Canada's most important uh, foreign, secure, uh, foreign, foreign uh, affairs, foreign policy instrument. Um, and so it is all about short-term gain at medium and long-term expense uh, for Canada's influence and Canada's standing at the wor- in the world. Uh, and I suppose that's par for the course with, uh, uh, with, with cabinet and government. We live in a democracy. It's up to the government of the day to decide um, what uh, defense the government wants um, and how much it's willing to pay for that. And the government's going to get what it's willing to pay for. And it clearly is not willing to pay for a whole lot. I could keep going, Christian, with this, uh, but we're out of time. Christian Leprec with us, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Surge pricing. Do you know what that is? You see it in Uber. More demand, more a busier time, prices go up. What about burgers and fries? What happens if you go to the drive-thru and there's 20 people in front of you? Does that mean the price goes up? Or with fast food, I'm guessing the busiest time is lunchtime, dinner time. Will you pay more for them uh, and more at that time? Let's bring in Moshe Lander, Senior economics, uh, economics Lecturer with Concordia University and here now. Moshe, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. My pleasure. First of all, Moshe, can you explain what surge pricing is and how it would apply to a burger chain? Yeah, so you kind of hit on it there in the lead-in. It's essentially an exercise of supply and demand. So in periods where you have uh, strong demand or if you had weak supply, uh, then the prices of goods and services would go up. And in periods where you had weak demand or abundant supply, then the prices would go down. So uh, you mentioned the example of Uber. If you want to try and grab an Uber at 6 o'clock in the evening, you're going to pay a premium price. If you want to grab that same Uber to go to the same location at 3 in the morning, you're probably going to pay a lower price. Uh, the exercise here for the food chain then is going to be, like you said, at lunchtime, at dinner time, when the lineup is out the door, uh, then all of a sudden your burger is going to cost 10 bucks as opposed to 7 bucks. Uh, and if you want to get it through the drive-thru at 1 o'clock in the morning, Maybe it's only going to be five bucks instead of seven bucks. Uh, so the question is, Moshe, if um, we're already paying seven bucks for a burger, does that mean at lunchtime and dinner time it stays at seven bucks, or does it go up and they just take advantage of the other situations trying to drive customers to the non-peak time? So this is going to be where the devil in the details comes in. If they're going to keep their base price at seven dollars and all they're going to do is just grab an extra two, three bucks at dinner time, uh, this is probably going to offend enough customers. Uh, that they're going to start not just looking to off-peak hours, but they're going to start looking for other ways of uh, getting their grub on, because I I don't know Mm. if that's something that a lot of customers are going to tolerate. If what they're going to offer is that the average price is around $7, and so if you want to get it in off-peak hours, we'll go back to $5. But if you want to get it during peak hours, you're going to pay $10. All right, then there's a little bit of understanding here that, yeah, you're putting a a bit of pressure on uh, the staff during these peak periods. Uh, Part of the exercise, too, is going to be that regardless of the pricing scheme that they go to, uh, are we going to see wages work with that sort of system as well? That if you're going to put stress on the staff during periods when the lineups are out the door and everybody is short-tempered, are we going to pay them $20, $25 an hour? uh, But when we have them working at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and nobody's there, then we're paying them $12 an hour. So uh, part of it will be, again, the tolerance of the customers is going to be in part how are we being treated in off-peak versus peak hours, and how is the staff being treated as well? You know what, Moshe, in a world where a fast food where everything is consistent, you buy a McDonald's burger, wherever you are in the world, it's going to taste the same. Will this fly? 
It will. Um, as with anything new, it takes getting used to. So, you know, I don't think anybody really bats an eye at Uber. We might complain when you call up a right. ride and you see that it's 50 bucks, 60 bucks, and you say, come on. Uh, but you understand why it's 50 or 60 bucks. And right. if you're willing to wait and if you're willing to book ahead, you can get a, a good price. But since the beginning, that's the way that Uber's always been. So we really don't question it. Uh, if you go back a little bit further then, right, we don't really question that taxis charge you essentially the same sort of way that Uber does, that if you're going to be sitting in traffic, uh, because they charge you not only per kilometer, but per minute, uh, mm-hmm. you are essentially paying peak pricing then when uh, you're taking it during rush hour because you're going to sit in traffic longer. So we've really never questioned that model. It's just that when it's new and it's disruptive to the way that we've always done things, there's always going to be people who say, but we've never done it this way. So are we to assume, OSHA, because it worked for Uber, it will work for Wendy's or McDonald's or pizza, whatever? It will work. Uh, and uh, again, the, the issue is going to be, how does that money get passed down to the employees? And do we feel that we're being taken advantage of? Uh, in the short run, we might run away for a little bit. But at some point, we're going to realize that we just can't substitute for our Wendy's. Uh, and we're going to come back. Uh, it's Do they learn their lesson and do they really care about what their customers are saying uh, and trying to at least show compassion that this is why we're doing it. This is how we're going to make sure that we're not uh, profiteering from you or or grabbing for cash. Uh, And if they can make a convincing argument that, hey, uh, it's really problematic trying to make sure that we're operating at peak capacity when there's 20 people in line at six o'clock. And that's a very different business model than operating when there's nobody in line at three o'clock. Uh, customers should understand it, but they, they really have to sell their case, uh, at least in the beginning, to make sure that the transition is going to be smooth. And I guess in the end, you have to feel like you're not being gouged during peak times. And that's it. And, and you know, as they do their first mover, it's going to be then for the other companies that follow suit to say, all right, lessons mm-hmm. learned, uh, or this is how we're going to make sure that you understand that we're not going to repeat those mistakes. Uh, the, the fast food industry is just the, the beginning of it. Uh, we've already seen even some of this type of surge pricing exists within grocery stores. If you see that some of these grocery stores will now have digital displays of their prices, uh, that's with the objective of trying to create surge pricing that when the items disappear from the shelf, if you want to grab that last one, you're going to pay a little bit more than when that quantity is abundant on the shelf. But we also see it as well with no issues when it comes to sporting events and concerts that uh, yeah. When nobody wants to watch the Leafs play, the price of the tickets fall. But when everybody wants to see the Leafs play, the price of the tickets rises. Um, again, we've gotten used to it in certain aspects. So we'll get used to it here. Uh, but you just got to convince us that you're, you're not doing it out of some uh, gouging exercise, like you said. You might get some debate on the Leafs analogy, but I understand what you're saying there, Moshe. Uh, Moshe Lander with a senior economist, uh, economics lecturer with Concordia University. Surge pricing uh, on fast food. It's uh, here to stay, it looks like. Moshe, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime. The plight of Hamilton's homeless is on display in front of City Hall as several tents have been set up to protest the failed motion last week to build affordable housing on two municipality, uh, municipally owned parking lots. Poverty advocate Angela Voss said she was furious over the decision and hoping the display will bring light to those that are unsheltered across the city uh, and what they are experiencing. Angela Voss with us, poverty advocate, organizer of the encampment and here now. Angela, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I'm doing very well. Thank you for your time. So tell us about the encampment that you've set up. What's, what's your purpose? What's your objective here? Um, the purpose is to get them to change their mind on that vote and to continue pushing the other projects that have been put on hold um, to increase the housing and show people that this is a hard life to live out here. And um, we're willing to do it for these people to, to show and the solidarity to what they need and what their needs are going to be and how much effort it takes to put together this encampment and are this, um, well, I, I'm calling it an encampment now because we have a lot of people here now, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, to, to organize all this stuff and to put it all together when a housing solution is just around the corner, if we could just all come to the table and agree that we need uh, solutions for people instead of more barriers. 
You know, it seems, Angela, and I know you're right in the thick of this, so maybe I'm looking at this from a very naive point of view, but it seems that we're spending more time debating whether it's about parking or housing instead of trying to find a solution here. It's not one team versus the other. It's how do we come together and find a solution. And and it seems there's a lot of politics going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And way too much politics for these types of decisions that need to be made. Um, immediately because people are suffering and this is yeah. preventable. So tell us about the encampment down by city hall, describe it and, and, and what you're experiencing right now, what you're seeing. Um, what I'm seeing is a whole lot of people that need a lot of um, health care, mental health care. A lot of people are not on their medications. They cannot afford it. Um, I've had an overwhelming amount of donations come in for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, just from people within the community, tents, um, sleeping bags. It, it's absolutely beautiful that the community is coming together to support us like this. Um, so I think I'm, I'm hoping that they see this, that the community does want this. People want to be cared for and people need this. It seems that we're, we're having to pick a side here, which seems so wrong, Angela. It, it's, it, again, it's either one side or the other, which, again, you're caught in the middle of. How long do you uh, propose to keep doing this? Uh, how long will this encampment by City Hall continue regarding this issue on, on, this law, on these two lots? Well, we're waiting until the vote tomorrow um, because it does come back up tomorrow for them no. to come back to the table. We're hoping that that goes through. If it doesn't go through, though, I've already contacted a couple of different nursing associations to um, come to this encampment and take over my position and give me relief. And I'll keep coming here and uh, I'll keep getting the community to support these guys where they're at. Because honestly, I can't see moving them right now because they're all medically challenged. Angela Voss with us, poverty advocate, organizer of the encampment, which is happening at City Hall right now. Uh, The plight of uh, Hamilton's homeless on display in front of City Hall. And, of course, the vote on parking lots in Stony Creek tomorrow. Uh, The debate around housing versus parking. Angela, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. You're amazing. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. third of Canadians are considering buying a home with others. Whoa-oh! Renting out a secondary unit? Uh, Other than the non-traditional paths to ownership, which nobody can seem to afford anymore, uh, due to our self-inflicted housing crisis. Let's bring in Andrew Enns, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger, who have published this poll for Remax. Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Uh, It's been a while, Scott. Nice to be back on your program. Yeah, great to have you here, Andrew. So how has, or the thoughts of buying a home, how has that changed over the last decade or so? What are people doing now that's different? Well, you know, certainly uh, I, I think the uh, the good folks at REMAX are really on to something in terms of some of the questioning that they're, they're doing in the, uh, you know, in the public because... Um, you know, we've been hearing for for quite a while, including on I'm sure you've talked about on your program about the price of housing and and, mm-hmm. and and it's getting out of reach. But what we're starting to see now in this poll that we did in January um, starts to look at how we're adapting. I mean, not surprisingly, uh, Canadians just aren't sitting around and and moaning about it. They're looking at creative ways to, okay. It, you know, the way mom and dad bought the house, that may not work for me. So wh- what are my options? And and what we're seeing is we're, you're starting to see a growing, a growing population um, that are open to looking at ways that, you know, right now we're describing them as non-traditional, who knows where they'll be in 10 years from now, but, but they're looking at different ways. Uh, for example, two friends together, uh, hey, let's buy a house. We'll go from there. You live upstairs, I'll live downstairs, whatever. Well, sh- sure. We're seeing sort of, uh, you know, co-ownership with uh, potentially with a with a family member who isn't like a, like a partner or spouse. We're mm-hmm. seeing uh, co-ownership with a friend. That's kind of lower down on the list. That was, uh, you know, and I... For obvious reasons, you you better really know the person. Um, yeah. But you're seeing, um, you know, people who are buying a property and looking to and basically not living there for a period of time, renting it out and, and trying to 
basically accrue some value that way and then and then eventually get in uh renting out part like the uh, you know sort of the basement suite uh, that that's been more common for a while i think in british columbia but i have a feeling it's starting to spread what about parents who have their kids living in the house anyway and, and expanding the family home to create more room for something like this do you see more of that um you know i think we're I'm not sure if we got into that category, but it wouldn't surprise me in terms of seeing where, um, you know, certainly with uh, with newcomers to Canada, where you see sort of the multi generational families uh, right. quite often, uh, you know, happening where, and, and that's I suspect is a way to get into the ownership market, and then from there you can you can sort of transition and and uh see where things go as as uh, you know families grow or or parents get older what are some of the challenges that come up when you start looking at uh 32% say they're looking at uh, non-traditional ways of, of entering into home ownership what are what are some of the challenges how do you keep your eyes open through this well you know, I think what you, uh, you know, you can imagine on some of those situations, like if you're, if you're uh, co-owning a property with, okay, let's start with a family member, which is, which is one of the more common non-traditional approaches, yeah. but you, you obviously, um, you know, you do need to, obviously there's strain on the family relationship uh, that can occur depending on how things go. Uh, you know, I think, I think with all these non-traditional um there are obviously avenues that can work, but I also think that there are avenues that require some some proper due diligence and likely, you know, you definitely want to make sure you're consulting with an agent uh, to make, you know, to, to cover all the bases and probably a good lawyer to make sure things are yeah. written up in a way that that makes sense and um, and don't create big problems down the road. I mean, that's the one thing, Scott, I think when you think about non-traditional is that there's not a lot of, um, they're, they're probably going into areas where there isn't as much um, sort of the tried and true, oh, this is the route that works best here, take this path. Yeah. I think some of this stuff you're, you're, you're going and, and you, you know, you just want to make sure you're a bit protected. Yeah, good legal advice is obviously a great idea before you get into something of this yep. size. What about financing? Would that become challenging or because uh, you got two you owners? Know, it, it could. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of the non-traditional is, is finding ways to get around the current sole ownership financing, you know, the, 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 the single family sort of thing. And the, you know, the government's, uh, you know, a year, a few years back has increased the stress test to qualify for mortgages. And so it's tougher and, and more expensive. So the non-traditional are looking at ways to get around that. I think, and I think it can do that, but there's probably again, ways where you have to be careful in terms of, um, it may not work in that. It may not work in favor, particularly if 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 uh, you know if one of your 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 non traditional partners may not be in a good um, mortgage situation. That could be a yeah. problem. I suspect as well. I'm not the financial guy, but I suspect as well is that you, you may if it's two different families, you may have to look at uh, if there's taxation implications potentially. Right? Mm. Um, it, it there may be, especially and again, especially if you're turning the property into a Holy revenue or partially revenue. I, I suspect there's considerations there, not insurmountable, but things to think about and, and add a little bit to the complicating. And, and again, another another uh, sort of requisite to make sure you're talking to a, a good a good uh, real estate agent. Uh, are these mostly private transactions, or are there companies that uh, facilitate this? The, you know, the research didn't get uh, research didn't get into it. I suspect yeah. that. Uh, you know that they'd be uh, that they'd be largely uh, you know individual transactions. Uh, you know, working with a you know working with an agent uh, in 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 most part, and um, you know at least the the some of the data points we collected, it looked like more of a of personal transactions. Uh, it's interesting. I remember seeing a piece on this where uh, I think three or four seniors got together and even oh, rented a home yeah. and look at it. You know, there's all, all sorts of options if you if you investigate it. Obviously, you see this sort of thing increasing over time. I, you know, I think so. Look, uh, you know, housing, housing affordability, the housing availability. It's it's up now, uh, and it has been for a year or so. Even better at top two or three top of mind issues of concern for Canadians. Um, it obviously, 
uh, skews a bit into some of the more heavily populated areas, uh, lower mainland BC, uh, you know, some of the cities in Alberta and, and the GTA. You know, certainly we see that in the data where the, it's, the incidence of non-traditional purchasing of homes is lower in, in, in Atlantic Canada, for example, where maybe the market's not quite as uh, prohibitive to get into yet, I, I'll say. But, um, but I don't think this is going away. Um, housing isn't going to get dramatically more affordable. The the the, yeah. the rise in prices may slow, but but it uh, I think it is what it is. Andrew Ann's with us, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger, talking about the new ways of buying homes as people try to get into one when it's hard to afford one. Andrew, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Scott. Good to talk to you again. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. And you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's here now. You can hear him adjusting the mic. How are you, Scott, today? You know, they need to oil this mic. It, I just realized <laughs> as I was pulling it towards me, you know, they need some WD-40 on this thing. Sorry about that. I, I used to have one in the uh, control room, and it would squeak constantly. And you could just one like, keep going really fast, really fast, really fast, and then not say anything. And people were wondering, what the heck is he doing in there? That's right. All it, right. My titanium hip needs a replacement. That's what it is. It's out of a bed spring. But I digress. <laughs> All right. So, um... Uh, I've solved the great uh, Stony Creek parking debate. Oh, yes. I I solved it this afternoon on the show. Okay. How'd you do that? I'm I'm quite uh, surprised that I didn't figure it out uh, earlier and uh, quite ashamed of myself. But I think the uh, breaking point for me was when I heard counselors saying that, you know, it's either parking or housing. And... And Scott, I'm going to say something that apparently we don't see say a lot in Canada anymore, or certainly not in Hamilton for a long time. I want both. I want both. I want both these extremists to go into a room and don't come out till they find a solution, a solution that includes everybody. So do both. Find a solution for your parking. Find a solution for your housing. Do both. Why does it always have to be extremism? Either it's this or it's that. Why can't we do both? And Scott, it's not just this or that. In a lot of cases, it's this or that, or you are an evil, horrible person who (laughs) wants people to die and live in the cold and freeze. And, And like it just... I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. I don't believe this is a, we can only have one or the other situation. I can't believe there's a bunch of adults sitting in a room screaming about this and they can't come up with a solution. This is exactly how we got a housing crisis in the first place. People not doing anything, not getting it done. Okay. So why can't they all sit in a room until they come out with a solution? So Scott, let me uh, remind you. (laughs) Uh, And it's not you, it's not you per se, but so Stony Creek, the the people out there, the BIA, the Chamber of Commerce, the residents, the business owners, they say these parking lots, this parking lot is really important to our business. Okay. We had only two or three weeks ago, a, an offer by Darko Vranich to build affordable housing and give it to the city at Sanford and Maine. And among other things, the city said, well, there's not going to be enough trees. So that was rejected. And then you've got this thing that's going to be on the council vote tomorrow about a downtown church that the heritage committee now wants to say is a, it's a falling apart downtown church that is going to need millions of dollars. And it's going to mean one, at least one condo tower that was going to be built, can't be built. I'm looking at this going, how is the people in Stony Creek? And you can agree or disagree. How are they the only bad ones when elsewhere in town, other stuff is being rejected left, right, and center. And no one seems to be putting out tweets about this and, and saying those people are horrible people. Good point. I just don't get it. It's death by delay. That way you don't have to make a decision. And when you don't have to make a decision, you're never wrong. Death by delay, LRT, housing, parking, pick, check off the list. It's all death by delay. Because if you delay, you don't have to make a call and therefore are never held to it. it. We also are seeing though, that every ward apparently has issues. Some people, especially if you live in the suburbs, 
it seems as though you're a bad person if you don't want to allow whatever to be built in your area. But if you're downtown or if you're in some other more core areas, it seems, well, there's a good reason behind us not wanting to do this. It just, it, it, it needs to make sense somehow. And I think most people who follow what happens at City Hall these days are saying, I don't see that there's consistency. I don't see that it makes a lot of sense. There are opportunities to do things. If we really are near as desperate to build housing, and I believe we are, but if we are nearly as desperate to build housing, there have been opportunities to do that. We've got a, a four, what is it, a 45-story condo tower that wants to be, that someone wants to build down on the waterfront. Huge uproar about, we, Scott, at what point do we say, okay, we're either going to build some things or we're not going to build some things. But if every single thing in every single ward that anyone wants to do is always fought about, and then we just point our fingers at the other people and go, well, you're evil. No, you're evil. No, you want people to die. No, you want people to die. We don't get anywhere. One word, stadium. Remember the, all the concerns about parking? We couldn't go to the uh, West Harbor because of the parking, and now there's less parking there than there was at the old stadium. You know, I mean, it, it's not, it's just nuts. It's nuts. It's just around and around and around. And, you know, where else you see a brand new stadium in the middle of a residential area? One. There's one that I, well, there's probably more. I think of in Green Bay, Wisconsin, with the, with the Packers, although that's uh, rather a historic place. Yeah, I know, yes. But, but other I, than I, that. I'm, I, I'm thriving to be like Green Bay. Well, <clears throat> all right. It's, 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 it's one example, but you're right. Other places either put it right downtown or they put it out in the suburbs where there's parking, but you rarely, you're right. You rarely see it Bad with houses move. backing onto it. Yeah. Bad move. And uh, again, we're making the same mistakes again. Again, don't build. You don't, you are where you are. All right, Scott, have a great show. Good luck. Thank you, sir. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. Uh, Frank sends us something on exactly what we're talking about. We want both. We want the parking and we want the housing. Frank entitles his division decision a division makers wanted. What color would you like your both campaign sign to be? I think you have raised a dedicated nerve here that is absent at City Hall, that being one or the other. No, 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 no. We want both. And don't come out till we get it. Keep right, except to pass. 